1: Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu.
2: Welcome back to the podcast. Slight uh, technical issue. We'll be back to the good cameras next week. <laughs> um, but starting off, I just listened to a Tim Ferriss podcast with Naval Ravikant, which I enjoy doing. I like Naval a lot. First time that I have been interested in NFTs after watching it. Cool. Uh, not First time I've heard of an NFT as anything other than an influencer pump-dump, cash-grab to Mm -hmm. exploit their audience, (laughs) which was exciting. Uh, So I'm not, listen to the podcast if you want to get it all, but between you and I with the parts that I found interesting. So they talk about Web 1.0, 2.0, 3.0. 1.0 is live journal and you go on the web and somebody writes to you, you consume it, not a lot of interaction. 2.0 is social media where there's uh, user-generated content, much more interaction, but owned by these centralized companies, Facebook you, uh, well, YouTube slash Google, Snapchat, whatever. And then 3.0, they talk about the blockchain, which has a lot of the interactivity of 2.0, but owned by the users. Mm-hmm. Like if Facebook were a co-op that you owned based on the value that you brought to the Facebook community. Mm-hmm. Um, so what was interesting is that I think they they identified the same thing that pisses me off about NFTs, which is there's a ton of cash grab. Um, but in technical terms, what they say is that it's morphic, which in... Andreessen Horowitz means that people are just trying to take things that exist in the world and like slap it on an NFT and pretend that it's novel. And this is what was bothering me about all the super excitement about Gary V's NFT, which is like, dude, you're going to get to go to this thing and only people that have the NFT are going to be able to enter. And if you resell it, you can make money. I was like, that is a ticket. (laughs) That is a ticket that Gary gets a cut of And he's like, no, no, no. He's also going to do like send you random stuff. Like that is a loot box. Like all of these things exist already. Oh, no, no, no. He's going to get on the phone with you. Like that's coaching, that's mentorship. He can sell all of these things. Now he, you could always, you know, sort of resell those sorts of things. He just gets a cut of the resell. And there's insane speculative value of this conference that no one has been to, no one knows any speakers at, which I thought was silly. But what they talk about, which is cool, and I don't know technically how we get here, but they were talking about like, imagine a world where J.K. Rowling uh, was not incentivized to keep sole ownership of Harry Potter, where she was able to crowdsource uh, new ideas and new entire stories, video games, that kind of stuff, such that, you, I see I see you making a face.
3: Yeah, sorry. Are you sure this is about NFTs and not about crypto
2: blockchain technology as a whole? Uh, it's, it's, yes, it's about crypto blockchain, but they were very every- specific to... They, and I don't know the, the details of which one would be appropriate for it. I'm not a technical person, but they were talking about it with regards to NFTs.
3: Okay. Because, well, mm-hmm. NFT just means non fungible token. But my, so my, we can get talking about it later. My friend who's deep into studying the blockchain uh, is very hot on DAOs, mm-hmm. which are another use of the technology, which lets you kind of crowdsource a company. Mm-hmm. But it, it has nothing to do with it, NFTs. Mm-hmm. It's just a token that basically symbolizes your ownership in a company that turns to you when asking what should we expand in and things of that nature. And so they uh, mentioned
2: DAOs as well. So I might be confusing it.
3: Yeah. I'm just curious. Like when you say, and maybe I'm wrong when you say JK Rowling crowdsourcing video game ideas for her IP and everybody who contributes to the idea, getting to reap value from having Mm -hmm. contributed. I, my impression is that that's a DAO, which is interestingly something I've heard no one talk about, like no, and Mm -hmm. people are, I'm not, this isn't (laughs) cutting edge, but like none of the, people pumping... Cash grabby stuff, yeah. Pudgy penguins yeah. are talking about this stuff. But the my friend who went into the blockchain and was studying AI and was just trying to figure out what's the next tech that really changes things, he came out saying DAOs. So they're going to be the thing that
2: actually changes the world. And that's what he's been investing yeah. in. So. Well, that's And I don't know if this will ever come to fruition in the way that I'm imagining. Almost certainly not in the way that I'm imagining. But that got me excited. The collective ownership of intellectual property. Like how many fan fictions uh i i think what it they were sort of talking about and these are my words not theirs is that capitalism has a weird thing where the person who writes the best contract gets all the value mm-hmm. right and it's not necessarily who generates the most value in any particular project or the fan who is like telling all their friends and family to get tickets and sets up the the fan website like they don't necessarily collect The value from that, it's the intellectual property owner who has it always and forever unless they make a foolish decision to sell it at an undervalued price. Um, And this was just the idea of a collectively owned IP where a critical role or a Harry Potter could have. I do wonder how it differs from stock because you could be
3: a public company. So like, let's say you own a a token Mm -hmm. for a DAO. And because you own it, you own part of the value of it. So you go and start a fan-based website that makes the IP better, that brings in more fans and therefore the tokens as a whole become more valuable. Isn't that exactly the same as owning equity in a company and doing the same thing for a company and now your stock is worth more money?
2: I think part of it is that what these allow you to do are to have contracts that are made instantly and like contracts. So if you go to this, this is I'm um, moving to a different field, but if you were to go to New York and you were to buy a piece of art off of a person, technically they could write you a contract right there that says, look, if you resell this, you will give me 10% of the value. But it's it's you can't do that. It's not enforceable. It's a pain in the butt. So they just sell it and they don't collect any of the value. I think what these super easy to execute contracts allow you to do is to set up very different incentive structures that become natural to this this new. Uh, economic form. still
3: sounds like a world where the person that gets the most value from something is the one that writes the best contract. If it's not a default contract mm-hmm. and it co- really is down to one-to-one and when I sell my ownership in a DAO or an NFT,
2: I contract with you. Mm-hmm. Aren't we back to the same thing well, about you, can, who, you who writes earn, the best contract So wins? you can earn ownership. Like, so to, in order to earn ownership in a stock, I guess you can work at the company or you can um, buy, buy stock. Mm-hmm. You can contribute to these networks in other ways and get ownership so right now mining is one of the things that you can do and i don't know how it will change in the future but you could uh raise the profile of a thing bring in a certain amount of of eyeballs likes like write the fan fiction that everybody is super interested in participating in sure but in i mean way, if you
3: write the best if you write the fan fiction that everybody loves you still get today to make all the money because either twilight or 50 shades of gray i forget which came first the other's just a fan fiction of the other Fifty shades of gray is yeah and that
2: person wrote it owned the whole thing and made a ton of money by writing it. And Twilight made none. So instead, what they would have done is written that fan fiction actually in the Twilight world with, instead of, what's his name, Christian Grey, they would have used Edward and mm-hmm. they would have started with that fan base, made a portion of the money, shared a portion of money. You know, So so it, it creates new incentive structures and I guess the thing that is exciting about that is, to me, instead of having a Fifty Shades of Grey in a Twilight, you get a Twilight fan fiction <laughs> which is uh, canonical and, uh, and not just fan fictions but video games music all these kinds of things you have people with ownership in intellectual property that goes beyond just that company and the ability to add to it create and iterate on it which only exists inside the company in a very top-down thing where uh, Disney says we now own Star Wars this is episode eight because we say it is you know, and everybody goes, we fucking hate this. And it's like, tough shit. <laughs> You're going to wait till episode nine or the next book. And if anybody tries to write a Boba Fett or a this or that and the only thing, we're going to sue the ever-living crap out of you. Disney would be incentivized, the way I understand it, to extend this experimental ownership to the collective because they would reap some of the benefits of the success of the collective. Whereas now, if you, if you write a Boba Fett fan fiction, Disney takes all or nothing if they don't sue you.
3: I guess, or just licenses it to you. I don't know. This, to me, sounds exactly like something you could do without needing a blockchain. So I feel like we've missed
2: the mark. Somehow. Well, so you could oh. license it. The, what this allows you to do is license it very easily to everybody. You know what I mean? So instead yeah, of writing- They don't want that. They don't, because they don't want a bunch of trash content that's technically licensed as Disney. Yes, so it's not, it doesn't become canonical. And this is, this is the thing, is that uh, the community now becomes the owner. So instead of Bob Eisner saying- uh I don't want that trash content. you're diluting the brand. The community tends to own the or owns the brand in mm-hmm. this new world, and the communities vote on what's becomes canonical based on their interaction with it in some sort of way. So I don't totally understand it uh and it you may be right that it might not work for well I just think we, I feel you like understand. Mark. I
3: kind of feel like we're. I kind of feel like we're looking at the internet being like, oh yeah, this will be like a new encyclopedia. Mm-hmm. And instead of having to look up a word in the dictionary, you will just type antelope and you'll find out what an antelope is. It's like, no, it's not going to be one-to-one to what you understand well, that's, that's happens the in the physical world at all. It's actually going to be this thing called Facebook. And I feel like right now we're describing uh, something that seems very, very similar to what we already have, mm-hmm. which means, makes me feel like
2: we've missed the mark. It, and it that may be the case. the The general point that they were doing is we don't know where we are yet. It's going to change everything. Here's Mm -hmm. some ideas of how it will. Collective ownership is going to change the incentive structure, and it's going to change the way that people interact with popular things, no longer as a fan separate from it, but as an owner of it, a creator, a potential editor, and it's going to shift the incentive structure, um, which I just thought was really exciting. And so you're right. It might not, like we're thinking of these licensing models, and maybe that's not what it is. But just the general idea that people will have – uh, myself, increased creative say, ownership, even if it's one one millionth of a vote based on my participation in Star Wars, Indiana Jones, whatever. Uh, the intellectual property piece of it was like... Well, I don't know. I mean,
3: yeah, is that good? Well, the, Is the best art created by crowdsourcing ideas instead of having
2: a couple geniuses work on it? I, I don't you know. You could still do both. You uh, this, And this is the thing. People are like, they say the... Uh, Crypto is going to destroy fiat. They're not into that, or at least the two guys on the podcast, which is Naval and this guy, Chris Mm -hmm. Dixon. They're like, there's space for both. There's space for top-down. There's space for bottom-up. This is just creating a new opportunity for things that will work in this. But there's some things where you're going to want uh, top-down decision-making that it will work better. Uh, But this is going to create new kinds of opportunities. Um, And that same question, you know, was the Wikipedia question. Like, is it better to have us write encyclopedia is to have everybody. And I, I definitely would have bet that the smart people should have written it. Um, so surprising that people without a stake in Wikipedia, other than like weird internet points. Second thing, I watched uh, John Oliver on homelessness the other day. We've mentioned this, but I just, I was struck by it. It's I feel like so many of the conversations about homelessness are just people talking about two different cohorts. Yeah, yeah. So they're like, sure. he just grabs, you know, this family who was paycheck to paycheck, and then the mom got laid off, and now they're living in their car, and you know, uh, just repeatedly, this is the face of homelessness. This is the face of homelessness. I was like, and and we shouldn't treat it uh, with these particular by criminalizing it or this sort of thing. And I'm like, uh, yes, <laughs> in this particular thing, uh, where yeah, I live, the, <laughs> the
3: homeless are not
2: a monolith. Not every homeless person is has
3: the same story. Not every homeless person is. Has the same likelihood of committing a violent crime. Mm-hmm. But it's of course you can't well, brush the entire homeless population with one brush. Like
2: yes, and I and I, what I thought was, uh, it's an it's an important piece of the conversation to have. But yeah, it it almost we just need to like split this into several different conversations and stop calling it homelessness because he was pushing against the mental health crisis narrative of homelessness, which is not the entirety of it. Uh, in the loudest in the area where I lived in Santa Monica firsthand, it's a drug mental health issue. Now Mm -hmm. there certainly are people that do not fit that bill. And I'm only talking about dozens or hundreds of people, certainly not the entire scope of it, but firsthand, I like that's, that is a cohort to which people are referring when they speak about homelessness and when they propose solutions. And when they talked about the intractability of the problem. So he concludes with, "Well,
3: yeah, it's kind of like treating the, it's like, oh, we, the unemployed are mm-hmm. all people that couldn't do their jobs. It would be a ridiculous statement, but also to say the unemployed are all people who were excellent at their mm-hmm. jobs and laid off for no reason is also stupid. Like some people are unemployed because they were not able to hold down jobs, and others were are unemployed because of a series of tragedies that, if given another chance, they would be able to excel mm-hmm. in a corporate environment. Like, yeah, it's, why, I don't is that, is he proposing that all
2: homeless people are the same? Well, no, and I don't want to say that he was, I think he tilted towards, no, 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 he definitely wasn't. Uh, But there was one quote that I had, which was, you know, you have to ask yourself because he's talking about how increasingly homeless activities like being in certain public areas are being criminalized in a lot of cities and says, you have to ask yourself if the rise in crime in homeless people is just from them sitting down. And I can tell you maybe some of it is, but not where I lived, (laughs) like where I lived, it was because they broke into our building on several occasions, stole stuff, you know, busted in the apartment. Uh, and committed crime crimes, yeah, yeah. This like is, it's just
3: it's just <laughs> the anecdotes it's absolutely but, it's but an end of one, but yeah, we yeah. had
2: homeless people who broke into our building, tried to rob people, broke into cars, mm-hmm. threatened people with weapons, and so the point is it's I found myself just saying yes, both, you know what I mean yeah, like, yeah. so they often, both exist, yes, and the question of of course is to which proportion in which area and uh, that the solution that works for for a particular cohort might be. Ineffective for another cohort of people, and rather than arguing whether it is a mental health crisis or it is uh, his solution, which which maybe works uh, for a lot of people, is like just provide them with homes and the problem is solved. Uh, it seems clear to me that it is neither of those across the board, <laughs> uh, and I guess that's not as interesting of a conversation to have, uh, and it doesn't lend itself as easily to solutions. But yeah, the the line that he has in that the segment was house keys are the only thing that ends homelessness. And yeah, given my just uh, experience there, I was like, that is not going to take care of what the people in the neighborhood that I used to live in were talking about. Like house keys would uh, very likely not do it. Maybe it would, maybe that would solve all the problems. But yeah, I it was, I just found myself saying yes, both. I also watched um, some of uh, John Stewart on, he's got the thing on Apple TV where he talks about the economy and I know it's trite to say, but I feel like liberals and conservatives just touch different parts of the elephant and mm-hmm. then insist that they're right all the time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then they just like get all of these images of their parts of the elephant. You know, this is the hard back leg and the way that this is a muscle and somebody's grabbing the trunk. is like, no, this is soft and tender. Well, of course, you <laughs> saw that
3: you saw, during the, the BLM protests was the strongest case I've ever seen of that, yeah. where if you turned on one news station would just have a bunch of police beating up just civilians in a horrible fashion Mm -hmm. that clearly was like a way way overkill beating up people in wheelchairs you know what i mean Mm -hmm. and then the other would have people flipping cop cars molotov cocktailing them running around with machetes and both of these things were happening across the country and it, it was very rare to see someone that had the two images next to each other you would get six of one from one news station, six of the other from the other. And most people are just living in rural or suburban areas. They're not, they're not even close to a real one. They've never, they didn't see a BLM protest with their eyes. And yeah. so whatever station they tune into is they just go, oh my God, The all of, all of the protests look exactly like this. It's yeah. all police beating up people in wheelchairs. They're so like, oh my God, it's just a bunch of people, Molotov cocktailing cop cars. It's like, yeah, uh, yeah, you, <laughs> it, whatever, narrative you want
2: is what part of the elephant you show people mm-hmm. there was a uh, I watched a little bit of uh, there's the YouTube channel modern wisdom I don't know the guy's name he does interviews with people he had David Pakman on and he at one point said you know the BLM riots or this and Pacman says you know I think it's really interesting you refer to it as the BLM riots I've never heard of it like that except on conspiracy channels when I think of riots I think of January 6th and uh, as if that was a sufficient point <laughs> that he had never heard of it yeah, yeah. that way, and I was like, "Dude, you're you're you just nailed it." Like two totally different worldviews uh, by people that were not present in Washington D.C. necessarily mm-hmm. at the Capitol building, nor were they at the the BLM uh, overwhelmingly peaceful or the violent parts of the riots. In uh, certain that anything that contradicts what they have heard the most from their echo chamber is a conspiracy. It's mm-hmm. like that is the interesting conversation to have, which is. How are you, like, like, uh, is there a principle? This is this was what was sort of frustrating me with the riots slash um, protests was by what principle does something get called a riot? If, like, the overwhelmingly peaceful, it was like 99% of this was peaceful. It was like, okay, if we apply that to uh, the amount of people at the January 6th thing and we take all of the people that showed up and all of the people that committed a crime and it is uh, 99% of the people didn't commit a crime... Does that count now as overwhelmingly peaceful? And we've we've said this in so many different ways, but of course not. There is nobody interested in like, uh, few people I should say yeah, interested and me, in and in, in the application of principles evenly to their pet projects and uh, their. I'm pretty confident that one of them probably was more
3: violent per capita than the other, but I've mm-hmm. never seen anybody run any sort of analysis to figure out which.
2: Mm-hmm. So and of course not all violence is created equal, right? You know, there's there's different kinds of violence. So like. You might somebody stealing property versus somebody murdering someone versus somebody uh, breaking and entering like these are not all the same exact types of things. Somebody you know issuing a death threat versus doing it, you know. Uh, but yeah, it was just <laughs> I was I turned off the interview after that. I was like, it's just going to be partisan for the rest of the thing. We're not there's we're not going to have the interesting conversation about why are you so certain that that the other side is a conspiracy <laughs> and that your side isn't. Yeah. And it's and you just said it because you've never heard it before. That's how we deem what a conspiracy is. Something that I haven't heard often except from the people that I dislike. Um, and I mentioned this to you, I won't go too deep, but I listened to the another podcast, Jordan Peterson, I guess it was on Michaela Peterson's podcast, talking to a woman who was an SJW by her own um, sort of uh, definition and hated Jordan Peterson and described it you know why she hated him. She's like, I listened to thirty seconds of you, and it, uh, I didn't like the thing you said. And I'd heard about you several times before, and so I was just like, never again will I let that person yeah, yeah. enter into my brain. Um, so yeah, that's a, a handful of the things that I've got. I've got a, what, a, one or two more, but what do you got? I have
3: a bunch of stuff. First, shout out to our unofficial sponsor for this Mint dot com. They aren't paying <laughs> me to say this, but today Mint dot com made me aware that someone stole my credit card. So Mm. I wanted to shout it out. I'm not getting paid for this, but everyone should sign up because I got an email. It's like, Hey, you have a fee for this withdrawal. You I said that didn't happen. It turns out in the last three days, someone stole my credit card, physically stole a credit card and has just been banging it for a thousand dollars of,
2: uh, gas liquor stores. And this happened, happened at our last, place where we lived where yeah, my was, a was card. constantly stolen because people would break in the building and grab yeah, stuff Yeah, it was a credit card I was waiting to get mailed <laughs> and I never received it so I
3: know that's weird but it's covid and the yeah, you yeah, know the mail's yeah. all been struggling so, yeah. just, so I guess I guess it got lost in the ether someone found it and mm-hmm. so yeah mint.com is the only reason that I know that somebody was
2: using my credit card so Thanks, guys. Yeah, and this is a car, just like that. We weren't looking at it. Was for the uh, Dungeons and Dragons podcast. It's yeah. like we put money in there and haven't looked at it. We're not ex- like I never got it. Yeah, I
3: never yeah. would have checked because I just thought that it got lost in the mail. Yeah, yeah, and USPS has been struggling with COVID and labor shortages, and it just was never going to make it to me. Mm-hmm. So it didn't. It didn't occur to me to check that someone else had gotten it and was banging it at Buffalo Wild Wings. Yeah.
2: Well, hope they enjoyed themselves. Yeah,
3: I mean, it seems like it. Thousand dollars <laughs> over the last three days. I think they're having a great time. Uh, another thing for all the fight fans, Hoth Thor has transitioned to boxing. Thor, the guy that played um, the mountain in Game of Thrones. Uh, it's pretty interesting. He's actually doing fights. He does... I hope he does a fight. Uh, he will get starched by any professional did you fighter. you watch him? Yeah. Have you seen him? I, I've watched him fight. Uh, he's a great athlete. Let's start there. He's obviously very strong, and I think he's taking it seriously. I, I don't... but. I don't know what to say, except for as soon as a real boxer steps in the ring with him, he's going
2: to get murdered. You think so? Yeah. Even for if they're sure. 100 pounds lighter.
3: No one, yeah, they won't be, is the thing. So he's, he is 345 pounds, which sounds crazy. And when I first heard the mountain was doing boxing, I thought this is going to be awesome because there is a point where size matters. I think he, there's a sparring session that went viral where the mountain, Thor, he fights Connor McGregor, quote unquote. And I think he would have murdered him at any moment if he mm-hmm. cared to. And this is when Connor was in his prime. And I was like, oh, Connor pieced him up. It's like, no, this gentle giant allowed your hero to survive this yeah. sparring session he could just straight up like it was game of thrones grab him by the skull and just, just murder him and so when i heard he was getting in boxing i was like oh this is gonna be sick because at some point if shaquille o'neal gets into mma he can win with some training just by virtue of size and i'm curious to see what that size versus skill differential is but this guy is actually not that much bigger than the heavyweight boxer he's 350 pounds and tyson fury's 280 pounds Oh, you could be 280 as a heavyweight. And so at 65-pound difference, Mm. I realized this is not as exciting as all the YouTube channels I was watching were making it out to be, and he's going to get starched. Mm -hmm. But he won't. He'll just do freak show fights, and I don't say that pejoratively. He'll do, like, Logan Paul versus Floyd and my other type stuff and make a bunch of money, which is sick. But we don't actually get that experiment yet, which I, as someone who likes fighting, have always been curious. If LeBron at 23 decides he wants to do MMA, is he the heavyweight champion of the world within six months? Yeah. So that's the thing. Like maybe maybe he is. He's six eight. He's a freak athlete. We is, I, I don't think we've ever. No offense to Stipe or Francis Ngannou. But we haven't seen a LeBron James in there. And I thought this was
2: potentially that. But it's Francis is close. Definitely not in terms of. I mean, when was the first time Francis uh, threw a punch in an octagon? I don't know. He was he was in. Francis salt mines. is great. Yeah. 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 And so he's he he is an example of a freak athlete who didn't <laughs> come to the sport until much later in life, and he's incredible yes and but he's still capped by that need to be 265 yeah so if you
3: so him versus Shaquille O'Neal at 380 yeah yeah who knows I have seen Francis Nagano pick up Shaq Shaq says the first time in his life he's been picked up that's since he awesome. was over 15 <laughs> I like Francis Francis just to be clear trained at my old gym and is uh my coach and him are very very close friends I like him but I one day we will get to see what happens when the guy that was going to be a linebacker in the NFL decides to do MMA instead at, yeah, Henner Henner rolls with a, an NFL player. Have you seen that? Yeah, the guy. Goes so, easy. Yes. The, I was trying to, to figure out how to say this. Like, I like Henner. I think Henner's an amazing, amazing jiu-jitsu coach. Might be able to win if they were both trying their hardest. But the guy that he's doing jujitsu with is clearly focusing on technique. Yeah. And purposely not doing what he would do in a life-or-death fight, which yeah. is just bench press Henner off of him because yeah. he's gigantic and, and much stronger and athletic, more athletic mm-hmm. than he's. Do, then he's when he's, you know, rolling lightly with his coach. Yeah. So, yeah, which is interesting. Hawthorne's boxing, and I think he's in trouble if he ever tries to do it for real, but he'll probably make a lot of money in the meantime
2: because people want to sign in to watch the mountain well, box. I, I understand what you're saying, but you're, like, you're putting up against Tyson Fury, which is the best boxer in the world, period, mm-hmm. when you don't control for size. So, like, he could still beat up heavyweights, which is to say that he's one of the best boxers in the world, probably top he could be you don't think he could be top 30 in the world the fight i watched was him
3: fighting the best arm wrestler in the world which i thought was really brave of the arm wrestler mm-hmm. because you are coming in with the only combat experience that guy had was he's actually an ex-special forces uh military person from canada i think but clearly had never boxed and so they're just both in there having never boxed except one is the mountain and the other is a arm wrestler so yeah. their size difference is pretty meaningful yeah but that when I watched that, that was the fight where I went, no, this isn't, we're not quite at the point yet where we're, we're seeing like s- giant stud athletes take boxing seriously and, and work at it for a while. Mm-hmm. I got some billionaire stuff. I don't know if we, uh, we haven't really touched on the billionaires, but the U.S. proposed a, a tax for unrealized gains. Mm-hmm. That's something the billionaires are really pissed off about because a lot of times we've talked about this, people who have multi-billion wealth it's because it's all in stock for companies they created. And so they they don't think it's fair necessarily to tax them for that because it's not like they have the cash laying around. Philosophically, I would be on that side, except then instead of selling their stock when they want to buy stuff, they just take loans out mm-hmm. against their stock and thus never <laughs> pay taxes on any of their wealth. Just kind of bullshit. So it's just an interesting battle that's going on in the news. I don't know if you had a thought on it, but I think it's, it's unfortunate because the not taxing wealth until it's realized makes total sense, except for the fact that everyone who has a ton of wealth games the system because Mm -hmm. of that rule. And so then you end up in this weird place where in order to effectively tax those people, what you're going to do is hurt all the people in the middle who are investing but not enough to actually go take a loan out on it. Mm -hmm. And so they have unrealized
2: gains. So would we be taxed? Yes. I mean... Yeah, how would you value our business? Oh, no, no. You just get taxed for anything that you own. Like if
3: you had I own charisma on command. You also own cryptocurrency and the mm-hmm. S&P 500 yeah, and yeah, yeah. anything else like that. Well, no, that. the
2: one that I'm going is how would you tax me on charisma on command? I don't have the money. Like Well, that's actually an actually interesting question. I could sell I like okay, unrealized gains, crypto, like I could I could liquidate that. You know, I could sell it and the gains could you could you could tax it? I can't just sell charisma on command. Yeah. Um, and Jeff Bezos, by the way, can't sell whatever you say he's worth. If you were to try to liquidate his 11% at that value, he can't get it. Like that's not what it's worth when he tries to sell it. At well, that the value. other thing is
3: if he, I mean, if you do want these people to own a, enough of a stake in the business to still have a say in mm-hmm. what happens in the business. But yeah, I mean, I think somehow we need to improve wealth inequality. I still don't understand why we aren't just doing a wealth
2: It's tax. not taxing unrealized gains. It's, it's definitely not that. As a mechanism, it's too fraught with, with problems. The answer is NFTs. I don't know how, but... <laughs> I think it's a wealth tax. Warren Buffett said it. I've been sold on the idea. Just tax everyone 1% of their... Isn't that some kind of a tax on unrealized gains, though, is a wealth tax? Like, how do you determine my wealth? I own it, Charisma on Command. What is Charisma on Command worth? What it is, is but my you'd actually
3: be surprised. I think it literally is like
2: 1% is all you need to do a year. You still have to calculate what Charisma on Command is worth. I What What is Charisma on Command worth? Yeah, I don't know how they would do it for private business owners. Dude, I, I, the value of Charisma on Command, in, in my mind, is so volatile. <laughs> like I am constantly of the mindset that it could end tomorrow, and I mean that. Not necessarily tomorrow, but but within months it could be over. Uh or it could continue like we've also grown twenty five percent a year for several years and that could continue out. So how do you, how do I even begin to value something like that? Also, this isn't I can't sell stocks in this. We don't have replaceable cogs. Like, what's the value of charisma on command if you die or I die? Like and then and then do I get that money back when <laughs> when Honestly, I paid on unrealized gains? Probably not it probably doesn't take too big a hit unless we both die. It takes a hit, man. Yeah, but you know that, here's the thing. Oh, no, because you giving, where where does your ownership or my ownership even go if that happens? To the other one. Oh, so that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> no,
3: no uh, yeah, that's yes. what I'm saying. It definitely <laughs> wouldn't fall in half. You become a wealthier nice. man if I... I want to say this on the record in case I go, go mysteriously disappear. Charlie is a wealthier man if I die because the business wouldn't fall by got 50%. Got
2: it, got it. Not immediately. Um, yeah. yeah, you'd have to pick up the slack a little bit. But. Yes, yes, I'd have to, 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 to compensate for... for your absence. This level of wealth inequality creates social problems, which you'd like to avoid. But I also think they're not giving the devil his due, which is there is a portion of this wealth inequality, which comes from contribution inequality. And Mm -hmm. that's not to say that like this isn't to poo poo social supports or better childhood education, but they have that graph of uh, CEO pay or you know pay of the rich people and, and average worker wage and they were tracking with one another until the 80s and they split off. Part of that is, I'm sure, crappy incentive structures that could be changed and fixed. Part of that is the advent of software which allows one effective coder to contribute at a level 100,000 times more than a regular person and 10,000 times more than a, a normal coder. Uh, and then that cascades down to people like me and you who can't write code but now just are not speaking on a stage but can speak to either 10 people 100 people millions of people depending on how far that message goes so uh i don't know i don't i i'm just not on the the billionaire anger train as much because while agreeing with the sentiment that income inequality has negative effects which we would collectively want to curb and redistribute to some of the people that are on the bottom. But yeah, there's just, I don't know, the uh, billionaires as the problem seems too easy, too, too populist angry for me to get behind. And I'm, I'm sure you probably agree. Yeah, my biggest thing is I do, I'm just shocked that it's so
3: hard to write a tax code that does what, we want, which is Mm -hmm. to tax people who are insanely wealthy to some degree and solve the wealth inequality thing. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm just genuinely surprised that there's like for every rule they propose, there's just so many easy loopholes. I I wonder if that's just inevitable because when you have enough resources, like if the government's going to take $2 billion from you, it's worth spending a billion to figure out how to get out of it. Mm So I don't know what the solution is. That's why, like I said, I, the Warren Buffett one just seems so
2: simple. I'm sure the devil's in the details. But. Elon threw up an interesting tweet, which again, I don't know his morality, or but I think, I think a lot of people feel this way. Um, there was some sort of proposition that if, if they had $6 billion, they could end, I don't know if it was homeless. Oh, I was going to bring this up. Yeah,
3: yeah. It's CNN is so, such a silly goose. They wrote, 2% of Elon Musk's wealth could solve world hunger, says director of UN Food Scarcity Organization. Elon just wrote back, "Okay, if the WFP can describe on this Twitter thread exactly how the six billion dollars will solve world hunger, I will sell Tesla stock right now and do it. Yeah. But it has to be open source accounting so the public sees precisely how the money is spent. And but, they and then obviously they didn't get back to him, which is weird because I think he really would have given them six billion dollars
2: no, if they could solve world hunger. I don't. Hunger with I, it. I don't. I I don't know the guy, but uh, it's two percent of his wealth to knock out world hunger once and forever. what do they mean? Give everybody a cheeseburger today? World, nobody's hungry today. Like." It's uh it's, yeah, so I guess I guess what I'm saying is I broadly am frustrated when the problem is just pushed to billionaires. We've talked about how people are very unwilling to look left on the bell curve. Mm-hmm. It's very easy to say that the people who need to step in and make things more equal are the rich people. I had this sentiment when I was watching the John Stewart thing last night is you know it's not fair that I have to. Uh, pay for healthcare in a country where people have so much wealth. It's not fair that I'm not sure if my I'm going to keep the heat on. It's not fair if I'm not sure. And there's just very much, understandably, because this is human trait. Like, what about me? What about me? What about me? But there's not like, hey, I have heat and people in Bangladesh don't, so I'm going to take a portion of my twenty dollars an hour and send it over there. Uh, I think if people took the principles by which they argue for. The reduction of income inequality in America, and broaden that to the human race, and then said, "Okay, we are all going to send massive portions, and this goes through the middle class, through the lower middle class, into people who are under the in the poverty level in the United States, because in order to uh, limit inequality amongst humans, we're going to have to talk to those people who like literally don't have sanitation or clean water um, and are dying of of river parasites." I, I think that you would see those principles evaporate, <laughs> which is, or you end up with with uh, people draw the line around the U.S. They say we should solve, yes, we should solve this problem within the U.S. and don't worry about people who aren't in the U.S. To which I now know to say, right. okay, why don't we draw that line around our neighborhood? You know what I mean? So why doesn't each billionaire say I'm going to solve income inequality in my little county? Or like, why why is the U.S. the appropriate measure? And the only answer that I think people come back with is. Because that's the one that, that gets the money to the people who I want it to go to, but prevents the people that I want it to go to from having to send it to people even poorer than them. Um, so, yeah, I, when I listen to these, I get it, I, I understand it, and I, I, I like charity water, because <laughs> they, they give it to the people that don't have access to water, and I understand like, yes, we want the government to tax people more, but I understand the the dislike of how the US government spends the money that they get. Have you been following the, the strikes at all? A little bit. Just that they exist. <laughs> John Deere, right? Yeah, yeah. I know a couple of buzzwords. It's a couple of it. Kellogg
3: John Deere. Do you have any you haven't looked into them at all? No. The one thing I thought was and I could be totally wrong here, but the one thing I thought was interesting is it's for John Deere, at least my understanding, is there's this pretty massive two week Strike, mm-hmm. ten thousand plus people, and they they were gonna cut pensions for new employees, which people didn't like. Which I think is actually cool to stand up for because it's employees who do have pensions just standing up for people they don't know who are coming in who wouldn't have pensions. So that, I, at least from my understanding, that seems pretty noble. And then the other thing is, there they were offered a five percent raise, and they the new thing that they're thinking about signing today is that was doubled to a ten percent raise. Mm-hmm. And then I was just curious. So I looked into it. I was like, how's John Deere doing? And they had the best year ever pre-COVID. Their earnings was at like roughly 3 point something billion. Then it dipped to 2.8 something billion. And this year they're at 5 billion. They're just Mm, absolutely crushing crushing it. it. And I was thinking to myself, I wonder if this, at the bottom, if this negotiation looks fervent and full of turmoil and bordering on violent as it's all these protests and then on the other end, if they're just negotiating against a guy who's like, yeah, I'm going to give them, I'll give them more than this. I have so, I've I made $5 billion instead of three. I have so much more even than a 10% raise to give them. I'm just going to try to play this chess game to the best of my ability. Because in my mind, I was like, John, D, just to be clear, even if this got signed, maybe the pension is a huge deal. And I, I didn't run math on how much that is. But in terms of a 5% raise instead of a 10% raise to their workforce, their workforce isn't all of their expenses and their profits are up several billion dollars like i don't know that this is actually going to even really impact them unless unless their revenue plummets and then they'll have to lay off i guess 10 percent more people
2: so you're 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 talking about them as a company i think the decision makers are like a ceo who has a mandate to make as much money as possible if he does he keeps his multi-million dollar a year job if he doesn't they get someone else to do it for him and Mm. so it's I think part of the problem is that it's just abstracted layers of people wanting the most from their thing. So like somewhere there's a pension fund that owns John Deere. And what they want is not 4% a year. They want four and a half or five or like, you know, whatever. Got it. And so if John saying, Deere dips below, they well, sell it. And this is interesting. You're, <laughs> saying,
3: you're saying that the entity of John Deere is going to be totally fine giving this yeah. 10% raise, but the CEO who makes the decision might get fired and might go yes. from making an incredible sum of money to being unemployed. That's yeah. interesting to think about. So yeah, so the entity, if the entity were co- were a conscious being, would go, yeah, this is, a, I don't actually get hurt yeah. from this at all. I had a record profit year, best ever, but the person who makes that decision, if they make it nonchalantly instead of trying for every dollar, mm-hmm. because they're they have that quote unquote fiduciary responsibility to their public
2: shareholders, they'll get fired for failing to maximize profits. If they give them a fifteen percent thing without negotiating, they're can yeah they, they, they get zero dollars. that's interesting that's because when
3: you're the CEO of a public company you are you are fired if you don't put profits first mm-hmm. that's your quote-unquote fiduciary responsibility that's what your board of directors is in charge of doing is firing you amongst other things firing you if they don't think you're stewarding your
2: public investors capital mm-hmm. to the best of your ability or to the best of the company's ability yeah and it's like I, I don't know if this is I've got too many broken metaphors today, but it's kind of like if every time you ate a piece of food, it either saved your right hand or your left, they they were in competition with Mm -hmm. one another for resources as opposed to being, having a sense of being part of the same organism. (laughs) And that is probably the case for how the CEO feels about zero dollars or all the money. You know, he's like, look, I can give up a little, but I need to keep my job. Like if I if I don't keep my job, it's it's not just a little out of my pocket. And in that
3: case, that's interesting because that in that case, it is a bunch of people negotiating for survival at the bottom. Yeah, and one guy who feels like he's negotiating for survival survival at the top, but not survival of the company, which will be okay, but survival of himself Mm -hmm. because his job actually is on the line in a way that the company they're actually not. It's not life or death for the company. If but
2: collective it, investors in pension funds and hedge funds all decide, you know what? We're okay with 3%. Yeah, we in don't fact, care about profit. In fact, we care about workers. And so we're going to have metrics that are sophisticated, not just like one little check mark that right. like, how are your workers doing? Are they happy? Et cetera. He'd ease off of it immediately. Yeah. So he, <laughs> he's
3: actually just the the symptom of the mandate from all the people that own John Deere. And by the stock. way, and this is my is point. John is John Deere like, public? I think it must be 100%. because it has, earning, yeah, it yeah, has yeah. earning reports.
2: And so, and where does that come from? It's like literally the evil in every human heart, which is simply, do you participate in systems that you do not understand <laughs> and try to reap the most from them? Like, do you like the taste of your food regardless of where it comes? Uh, you know, when you negotiate with the contractor, somebody who's doing work for you, do you try to give them a little extra to make sure their family has it? Or you try to find the best price of <laughs> the best value, which is what everybody does, except... With friends and family and yeah it's
3: actually and that's funny because what you try normally the pattern uh, unless it's like backbreaking is that you'll try to find and you'll negotiate and you'll look out for yourself until Mm -hmm. you get to know the person Mm until the person's in your home installing your electrical equipment Mm -hmm. and you talk to them and you find out their background and then at that point you end up tipping above what you negotiated because Mm -hmm. you feel for the person and you're like oh this
2: person needs this more than me Mm -hmm. at least that's the the Pattern, I, I feel like, exists. So yeah, so what is, it seems that the, you know, <laughs> what you have are these layers of abstractions that allow people to be their most selfish versions of themselves without literally a thought about mm-hmm. it. Like when people, uh, here's what's happening. Well, they it's look something. out for
3: themselves, so they sell. This is what's funny is they, they own the John Deere stock. The John Deere stock isn't performing well. It doesn't yeah. have a high enough dividend. 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 <laughs> dividend. So they sell it. So they, yeah, they sell it. Just, they're like, oh, the stock isn't doing well. I'm going to sell it. And then that selling pressure creates pressure from the board yeah. of directors to the CEO that says, hey, you got to get this stock back up or else you're fired. And so then he goes, okay, well, I'm not going to
2: give people mm-hmm. the biggest raise possible because I'm right. going to get fired. And what could prevent that sort of decision-making? If they told the CEO, hey, we're going to fire you unless you screw your child or your wife or your whatever. And he would go, no. <laughs> you he know? might screw us well. I mean <laughs> Depending on what <laughs> definition the of the word. Yeah. Um, but no, and so that's that seems to be the question is, is in a $7 billion or plus things how do you get people to care more about others yeah to hold, that are... <laughs> to hold the stock yeah. when it's
3: going down because yeah. you like the decisions that led mm-hmm. to the less profitability mm-hmm. that that led oh it's not my dividend is non-existent because they paid their workers well yeah, yeah. because they sourced more expensive equipment I mean, this is like was the dad sourced. that
2: goes to disneyland to watch his kid be happy you know it's like he doesn't like disneyland he thinks dumbo is a stupid ride he doesn't like 45 minute waits but he likes his kid being happy. Yeah, yeah, So it's like, yeah. How do you have sources of joy and happiness that extend outside of your own skin bag? And so we have we have examples of that, which is friends and family. And I think even some small businesses can hit that. I also that wonder, level. yeah, how many?
3: It's this is actually really fascinating to me now. I wonder how many people laud the strikes and sell their stocks when, like, I wonder if they're how with, many people with are their like right hand doing this and with the left hand doing this you know what i mean they're like they yeah, go this, to... this is great and then when john deere does it yeah and it starts underperform they sell the stock like when they're they... contributing to the thing that they they think
2: they're against but they don't connect the to when they go to a store to buy tractors and they see that the price of the john deere tractor has gone up 10 percent in order to accommodate everybody and make more money and now they're getting a 20 percent wage and it's going to them he goes to a different brand yeah that's <laughs> yeah, exactly. the one that does more for less The roots of these problems, and this is, I guess what I was trying to say poorly before, is that I hate that we draw the line at billionaires and go, there's the problem. It's their selfishness. It's like, no, every single transaction that you participate in exemplifies the same problem just an order of magnitudes larger. Yeah, I'm going to outsource
3: this a little bit because I think it's fascinating. I'm going to turn to our listeners. Can you please comment any brands that you think are ethical? Like the one I always quote, even though I could be wrong, is Patagonia tends Mm -hmm. to, it seems like, care about their sourcing and their quality and this and that. I'd love to just have a list of of companies where it's like, okay, this is where I'm going to get my clothing. This is where I'm going to get my computers because it's more expensive, but you it doesn't they involve are? cobalt mines. They're private.
2: Yeah. Because if you're public, you introduce that level of abstraction. No, no. And now the ultimate bosses do not feel or see the other stuff. And yes. so Patagonia, I, I don't know if it's true. I read the book. They've got the lifetime guarantee. And he's like, I think it's wrong that people should have to buy more than one jacket. You know what I mean? If you buy a jacket, we should fix it forever. Is that the best way to make a ton of money, even though it's good for reputation? Probably not. Like, seems like planned obsolescence with his iPhones working out pretty well for Apple, you know? <laughs> yeah. uh,
3: what if we just purposely made our stuff fall apart after yeah, yeah. so that's I bet the guy that came up with that in the meeting got such a fat
2: congratulations yeah. for it. Um and so there's all this like, oh, it's good for business. And it's like, no, it's not as good for business. <laughs> you know what yeah, I mean? yeah. Like, are there reputational benefits? Certainly. Can it be a competitive edge? Certainly. Is it the best way to maximize profits is to do the ethical thing? No, that's the whole damn point. No, I'm is positive. Patagonia that- <laughs> doesn't make the most money of any clothing brand.
3: So, but I'm just saying if people, in the, if people listening have any other suggestions for ethical mm-hmm. companies, let me know. Because yeah. I, I would like to start speaking with my dollars more just to try to try to be the change i want to see in the world Well, this
2: is so we have and i was talking about this and it's like it's tough because depending on the day i'm more in tune with this or not but uh so we have our our coo ivan who's super into investments and we've given him money and i asked him i said what are you going to invest in he said alibaba i was like dude isn't that just the ccp (laughs) aren't we just like funding the the CCP? the ccp at this point he's like dude it's so undervalued and I, I, asked a couple. I was like, that doesn't seem like the right thing to do. Uh, you know, even if it is undervalued, and, and granted, if you have an argument for me that like, no, it's not the CCP, or yes, it is the CCP, and that's good for the world, because yeah. I'm, I'm amenable to that. I don't want to uh, just sh- say that the CCP is evil. I got you covered, dude. I've lost thousands investing in psychedelic stocks so far. So I am <laughs> be, I'm, I'm funding what we want and losing money at yeah. a rapid rate. Well, just and it's and that's it. It's uh. It's these levels of abstraction. You know, money allows you to extend your tendrils into the world and influence people without knowing about it and pay for people to do certain jobs. And it's like, am I just funding some guy developing the next uh, social credit score <laughs> at Alibaba where they track all of their citizens? And yeah, yeah. if you're a weak, like, is that, is that where my gains are going to come from in this particular investment? So, uh, yeah, I asked him three times. He's like, it's undervalued. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think I'll, I'll give a call after this. Yeah, I don't think I own anything like that. Oh, I'm sure. I, you, I'm sure we do. I'm sure you do. Like, do you know any everything about all of the the businesses that you've? No, no. Sorry, I'm just lazy. I don't own a lot of individual names. Mm-hmm. I think I,
3: I think AT and T is like the only one. So if AT and T's, what do you own? Bad, do You own
2: diversified. Yeah, I just own. There you go, man. There you go. What's in that ETF? Who well, knows? Yeah, that I have no idea. Who's in, What's in that mortgage-backed security? Are we, you know? Like, nobody knows. Yeah. And so it's, and is reasonable to be like, I can't deal with that. I can't be, uh, I can't track the result of every dollar that I spend. So, yeah, I don't know how, it seems like what you need in order for this problem to be solved, quote, unquote, once and for all is a raising in the level of consciousness such that people feel more connected to the whole. And I I look at the body and the family as examples of of units of disparate cells, some families families, that make uh, responsive decisions for the good of the parts and the whole at at the same time and are making these trade-offs and are incentivized to do that in a way that is uh, sustainable. Anything
3: else? Yeah, I don't even know how to intro this, and I don't want to be insensitive. <laughs> I was going to because I have a dark sense of humor. But <laughs> let's talk about suicide powder. stuff. So a Dutch psychologist uh, had an interview with a newspaper, and he said he gave suicide powder to more than 100 people, and that he was speaking out in an effort to provoke debate in Netherlands about the laws on assisted dying. Mm. And this Dutch psychologist had a loved one who had a horrible case of i believe it was dementia i apologize if i get the i didn't write down all the details but he he basically saw someone just like technically living but living out a life of of confusion and pain that he thought was that they would have opted out of if they could but netherlands doesn't have assisted suicide or or the ability to help someone like that if they're physically in pain or anything like that so he sold suicide powder to people if they wanted to have a pain-free way to opt out of Mm -hmm. existing and then came out on it, even though it's a crime, because he's trying to push forward what he thinks is positive change, which is the ability for people who are are physically or or mentally agonizing in a way that there seems to be no end for, to just be able to opt out. I think probably skewing to the elderly. Uh, At least that was my impression of what he was doing. And I think that's an interesting issue. So I was curious if you have an opinion on it.
2: I've often thought, and I don't know anything about this particular guy, I think that behavior can be heroic. Like, to put yourself... I think of it... I think life can become prison for some people. And to put yourself in front of the law to break someone out of jail, I think is like... not. I'm not saying this particular guy, I don't know the details, but can be a really heroic and selfless act.
3: Yeah, the super tricky part is that... I think a lot of people are suicidal in a moment and then come out of it and are incredibly grateful that they didn't Mm -hmm. succeed or that they had nowhere to turn for an easy, guaranteed, painless out. And so my thought is, I think in the right circumstance, there is a place where it makes sense and is moral and ethical. And at the same time, it's incredibly dangerous because most, I think, people with suicidal ideations don't commit suicide. And end up very grateful for that fact. And so the question is, well, how are you going to buffer this such that it's only getting to people that are, for instance, like in daily physical agony from a degenerative disease that there is no cure for?
2: Well, and- I, I understand, but I, we also have guns and bullets mm-hmm. and, and we, we deal with this problem already which is it's really easy to kill yourself it's not it is not a challenge um i don't know that suicide powder would at all increase the likelihood that it happened in fact i could see it only helping those people that were like invalids or elderly etc no i think societal acceptance
3: is what would increase Mm. it i think a lot of times suicide there's a guilt to it and a shame to it and i think think it's
2: society or to the loved ones though i I don't know, but I would imagine no, it's, no. To your, to your I loved it's to your ones. I think it's to your loved
3: ones, but I think it's I mean, I could be wrong. We could bring on someone who's much more of an expert <laughs> of it. Uh yeah, I think I think it's probably to your loved ones, but I think it is uh something besides the fact that it's difficult to physically pull off prevents it.
2: Yes. Yes. And I 100%. I think it's your loved ones and and what they'd have to deal with. I don't think it's the government says it's legal and people have a sure. thing. Well, maybe what you could have is loved ones signing off on it for the, cause for this guy, what he's talking
3: about is the elderly. So you could just have someone's whatever their closest kin
2: yeah. basically come in and just be like, we support this person's decision. I actually think I would not want that to be the mechanism. I actually think, I don't know if it's a time delay or what, but it should be your own sovereign right to end your life. Um, it is. You like it or not. <laughs> you know what I well, mean? Well, yeah, I mean, there's, <laughs> there's no stopping it. <laughs> um, right now, and thank God for that. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not a religious person. It's just a phrase I use. <laughs> but the, yeah, so, so I, I really think it, it should be legal. I've thought about that. I've thought of being in a situation where I was an invalid in a hospital, and I was like, what a burden to oh, so I like it. whisper to the person that loves me, to whisper to you, be like, Ben, kill me. Like, and I don't mean, But sorry, I don't, I don't mean paralyzed. I mean like suffering in pain, trapped inside my body in a way that was, uh, torturous. Maybe you don't know this. I had a, uh,
3: extended family member who, I think I talked to you about this. He had a degenerative spine issue that was causing Mm -hmm. him excruciating pain. He was living in an assisted living facility and eventually just stopped eating. Mm -hmm. So he's like, I'll just, just the pain of starving to death. For two weeks beats the pain of so doing this. He was 90 something, I think. Uh, I don't want to get the age wrong. Cause my mom watches and constantly tells me I got the details wrong, but we'll say 93 rough guess. And yeah, he just went, all right, well, I'm just going to stop taking my meds and stop eating. That's a messed up, uh, legal system. Yeah. 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 That's a, that's so messed up. Well, that, he
2: was in a facility, so I think it's would be
3: hard. Like he can't, he's not getting I'm saying that's
2: No, no. Because, because everyone there would, I, I bet you so many of the people would be like, if it were up to me to go deliver this pill to you, I would do it in a heartbeat, except I'd go to jail. You know what I mean? Whoop. And the rest of my life would be ruined. And I thought, like, what a horrible position to be in if I'm on that table or somebody asks me. And I've, I thought, what if somebody that I love asked me? And I knew they meant it. And I knew this wasn't a fleeting thing. And they're in a horrible position. Like, do I have the guts to do that for them and then suffer the consequences? It's like, it's, it's a horrible, horrible system that we have. And I absolutely think that there, you need to be legally able to uh, assist someone ending their life and of course there need to be protections to prevent uh people who just broke up with their first girlfriend from taking suicide powder uh you know and all that kind of stuff it, it's not it's not to limit any of life's pain but there's certainly times where people are ready to go and can't uh facilitate it themselves so yeah i'm a, I'm a pro of that being introduced well, first. thought st- you'd have an opinion on it that's yeah, i brought it up strongly strongly pro Anything else? No, I'll edit that. The rest are not time-sensitive. Nice. Also, one thing that we have not yet mentioned, you guys might start seeing, we're going to be moving the clips to a new channel. Uh, the reasoning behind that is because that's what the biggest podcasts do, and rather than treat ourselves as a small podcast, which we currently are, and like gathering as much views as we can on this one channel, we want to... Uh, dress for the job we'd like to have, <laughs> you know, which is behave as if you, we were planning on having a separate clips channel with tons of views and this podcast to keep things more simplified rather than bombarding you guys with clips, which you may have already seen. So this yeah. is the podcast channel where you can, you know, it's going to be new full-length podcasts, and the Clips channel, which we'll throw in the link below, is where you might like to sign up if you just want to pop in for a certain topic or something like that. Yeah, my
3: sense is they're different consumers. And so some people want to see the full podcast, and spamming them with clips on their YouTube homepage is unnecessary. They don't want the clips, and other Mm -hmm. people just want the clips. And so this is meant to tailor your experience so you get what you want. And if you like both, you subscribe to both. Cool. And put um, your notifications on either way.
2: Yeah, please do. Um, it'll help us kick off the channel. It means a lot. It means a lot to uh, the success of that channel and the AdSense and all that kind of stuff. So if you're interested in the podcast and you might want clips, click the link below. Check that channel out. Subscribe. And if you hated the clips, congratulations. They're gone. You'll we'll never see them again on this channel. <laughs> yes. This is full episodes now. What do we got from the audience?
1: First one is you were talking about being happy with very little money, but then also saying retiring with $3 million in safe investments after years of inflation isn't that great. Surely it's more than enough on that basis. Do you think the advice to invest pass- the advice to invest passively over time is the wrong advice for the average person?
2: Uh, well, there's a there's a couple of things in there. So, good question though, interesting yeah. question. Yeah. So, um, being happy on a little bit of money, and then I don't know in what context I was talking about it, or if I was just saying that inflation makes it not a ton, or or what was left over. But I'll answer the final question. So, what can you remind me what it was, Justin? Do I think
1: so? Well, it was it was kind of. I don't know if it was like an actual question or like a, a rhetorical one, but they were saying that um, you had talked about being very or being happy with little money, but then also saying that retiring with three million in safe investments after years of inflation isn't that great. And then they said that surely that's more than enough on that basis.
2: Oh, it, that's enough if you don't need a lot of money. Yeah. It yeah it very well maybe I suppose the inflation rate would be. Uh, important at that point, because I don't know how much $3 million is in in 50 years. And do I think that uh, safe investments are right for most people?
1: Um, the advice to invest passively over time is the wrong advice for
2: the average person. I think that one thing that I've learned, and I made this mistake, is when I read the four-hour work week, I thought everyone was supposed to be an entrepreneur. I was like, everyone needs to go out. And I still think that I would like more people exposed to that opportunity so that they could give it a try, especially in their younger years. Uh, yeah, I don't think that there is an average person. I think uh, we could maybe say most people. I imagine that probably investing passively is going to be what's better for the majority of Americans, but I don't know that that makes any particular person average. What I would recommend most of our podcast listeners do, given what I know about the rough demographics, is try to invest in yourself at some point in your life, which means try being a contractor, try starting your own business, give it a try, because that's um, the investment that you have the most control over, though it's still imperfect. And if you do wind up not going that route for whatever reason, I think it probably makes sense to still invest over the course of your life, though I'm not an expert, but it does seem that cash is uh, not not deflationary enough (laughs) in order to hold compared to like assets or something like that. Well, I think
3: the bigger question was if you are a proponent of not needing a lot of money to mm-hmm. be happy, like Costa Rica living, ah. a mattress that's not crazy, twin-sized, whatever, rice and beans every day, $3 million is 100 years of 30000 a year, mm-hmm. right? So if you're retiring at 62 with $3 million and you have adopted that mindset, how do you marry these two ideas that
2: you don't need more than rice and beans and you need more than $3 million? You don't need to take extra, in my experience, extravagant vacations, buy luxury items, uh, have the latest technology and, uh, in order to be happy. In fact, in my experience, those things contribute very little to it. Mm-hmm. If what you have at the end of your time is enough to do the other things, great, but you still probably want care, solid food, freedom to spend time with friends and family and to not have to live in an area that is super far away from them. Um, but if whatever the inflated value of $3 million and affords that, great. You'll probably be solid. So, this is a weird thing. P- P- when people get wealthy, they get bigger houses,
3: bigger yards. When I picture the Costa Rican family, I kind of picture everybody more on top of each other. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that? do you think there's something to that? Like, do you think that having your parents? closer to you in proximity, having your siblings close to you in proximity, when everyone has kids, all the kids are next to each other. Mm -hmm. Do you think that that is important? Do you think that's important for some people? Do you think that like what, because when I picture what you're describing in Costa Rica, I do picture a much tight, it was literally physically tighter community than than like a two acre yard and a like a drive or a five minute walk even. It was tight to your friend.
2: Fewer bathrooms per person, sometimes multiple people in the same room, the entire family in the same sort of stuff It sounds
3: quote unquote worse in the sense it's like everyone's on top of me. I can't get away. You know, I don't have that privacy. I don't have that big yard. But then at the end of the day, that's the in my and maybe I'm just wrong. For when me, when I hold up that like minimalist ideal of what people are describing when they're trying to say wealth isn't the key to happiness, I do picture that family mm. that's all on top of each other with, ki- you know, your kids playing with your brother's yeah. kids, playing with your sister's kids, playing with your neighbor's kids.
2: I want that. But with space, I will say. This is my, this is my question, yeah. actually. Is, is space antithetical to that? But we get confused. I think in some ways it is. Cause if you look at the societies that have it, they're the ones that live on top of each other. And then you look at us where these little atomized suburban homes, but so one thing to this question is that my need for space and the effect on my happiness has evolved over time. So when I was 19 and like had no space sharing a twin size bed, no back pain ever like, (laughs) uh, that was like fine and exciting and, uh, It put me in contact with a lot of Mm -hmm. different people all the time, and there was always stuff going on, and I enjoyed that. As I have gotten older, I don't know if this is subject of getting older or or changing independently, space has contributed increasingly to my happiness. One of the reasons I'm excited to have the place that I have is because I can have people visit, and they can stay for weeks at a time Mm -hmm. in a very much closer space than they would be if they came to visit and stayed at a hotel or something because I have a spare bedroom. Um, So... Yeah, I do think that there's value to that, and I'll let you know more as I have more and more people <laughs> stay and come and visit. But I, I, that's something I'm excited for is to be older and spend time with family and friends close, but with my own room. That's that's something that I have sure. am unwilling to uh, to say is a, a simple luxury it has been incredibly valuable for me for the microdosing and for all of that kind yeah of yeah stuff. but I, mean, I don't know i've told my
3: parents i want to get a little
2: casita i want to
3: get a house and then put a little house beside my house yeah, yeah. and have them move into it uh-huh. uh and i would see them every day
2: mm-hmm.
3: which which is uh not everyone likes their family i'm not saying that is the way i just picture when i picture that costa rican thing which we all hold up when we so they are the number one on the happiness survey you know like internationally they're scoring so well and the the anecdotes that you have it is much more on top of each other and then and it's
2: and it's what you're identifying is it's generations it's it's multiple generations yes, on top grandparents of each
3: other. are involved yeah. and then what we do at least in the u.s and uh where i grew up is we you know have big houses and big plots of land and we hang out with our parents and we see
2: our extended family occasionally yeah and so there's the value of the u.s is it allows the brother and sister to not have to move to the same neighborhood like you can go i can go to california my sister can say my sister lives in tennessee yeah and so it allows for a uh, different individual expression uh which is great but i think that what i hope to do in my really fortunate life is to marry them and to have enough resources to be like hey i found the good spot everybody come to my good spot <laughs> and I'll let me tell you why it's the good spot and have enough space you know rooms whatever um or casita. Yeah that would uh, afford multiple people. But uh, yeah, I think that there's something to that. I'm going to hopefully test it out. Next is, Hey Charlie and Ben, I've got a
1: female friend who touches me a lot and cuddles up to me a lot at parties we both go to. I don't believe this to be either friendly or sexual, but rather her being possessive of me. I don't want to be friends with her anymore, but I also don't want to discourage her from going to the same social circles as before should I make a scene and tell her that I don't want to be friends anymore or just go away slash remove her hands when she gets touchy? Can you just ask her to not be touchy? Like it's, I don't know if what the, uh,
3: I got a, I got a dog here trying to lick <laughs> my face. I, I don't understand why you don't want to be friends. If it's separate from the touching, if you're, if it, so there's two scenarios, one, there's a person I don't like and they're touchy. And the second is I have a friend who I would like if they were less touchy. Hmm. <laughs> So if you have a friend that you would like, except that they're too touchy, I would just say, hey, when we're out of parties, can you be less touchy? It makes it hard for me to talk to the women I'm interested in flirting with because they think that we're an item or whatever it is that is actually
2: your thought process. Because makes it much softer and nicer, I think. Because as I was listening to you say, I was like, oh, that's tough. And it's like, oh, as long as there's as
3: soon as you got to throw in what the reason is. yeah, yeah throw I, this is the mm-hmm. the classic I think it was Cialdini put it in mm-hmm. uh influence yeah,
2: Can I can I stand in front of you because I need copies <laughs> Yeah there's a copy machine
3: and when you just walk up and say hey can I cut you in line people say yes 55% of the time but if you just walk up and say hey can I cut you in line cuz I want to make some copies for some reason that jumps the yes 93% rate. Even though it's like obviously you want to make copies Obviously I want copies machine. So yeah so when you're talking to her you could just say hey I honestly don't know. Do you dislike when you're watching a movie and she's she leans her head on you? i I'm, I genuinely don't understand what you don't like, but I would just explain. You could, if it's all of it, you could also say, "Hey, can, I know you're really touchy. I want to be your friend, but could could you be less touchy? Because whatever, it makes me think that you're
1: hitting on me. <laughs> it makes me it makes
3: me feel weirder about the friendship. I don't know. I really don't understand. Hope that's helpful.
1: Dope. All right, last one is, my girlfriend of three months, 16 years old, is struggling with her dad having control issues, mainly interfering in our relationship and being overly strict when it comes to her freedom. She has to be home by 9 p.m., no phone after 10, can't talk on the phone with me over a certain amount of time. He decides how much time we can be together in a week, and he will take away her privilege to talk with me indefinitely. While I know she's still young, I can't help but feel like we shouldn't have to put up with so much, especially since he seems to be all right with us dating. I struggle to not feel like I should push for more freedom from her, um, or for her. But I know that that would only
2: make things worse. Hmm. Am I wrong in my feelings, or is there something I can do to get us more freedom? That's an interesting question. I mean, it sucks to be young. It sucks to have people in charge of what you can and can't do. I remember it. I have dreams about it. That it's. I wake up in a sweat thinking that people yeah. have control over my life like they did. In it also is <laughs> Serves a
3: purpose because <laughs> yeah. your your judgment is off sometimes when you're a teenager. And I'm not saying this instance, but
2: like you need bumpers so that you don't do something crazy that you'll regret forever. I have a question of this. Do you think that this would be a potentially useful ball and move? I actually think a 16 year old that has the guts to calmly an adult speak to a father is very, for many fathers, very attractive in, in a boyfriend. If he were to say something, you know, while you're over house, be like, Hey, Mr. C, could I talk to you? Um, I know that you know, you you're not comfortable with whatever Julie talking to me after nine or ten p.m. And I just wanted to ask if that's because uh, you don't trust me or something. And I just wanted to. I'd way rather it come from my daughter. Yeah. Than some. I mean,
3: they've been named for three months. Have I talked to this kid six times? Oh, he he's might well tell me how to be. A no, dad. he's not telling you. He's
2: asking. I'm saying.
3: Yeah, yeah. I personally, I'd find it much more persuasive to come be a conversation with my daughter, who I hopefully have a long history of mutual respect and love with. Mm-hmm. and if she, also if she wants more freedom she should present to me
2: so I, I i don't know what things are like nowadays and i don't know where you live but i can say if you are 16 years old and your parents are telling you at what time you can and cannot talk on a phone or to whom you can talk that would have be, been excessive when i grew up like
3: i don't know depends when school is If he's uh, like hey i'm gonna take you away your phone because if i don't you talk to your boyfriend till 4 a.m and then we <laughs> have to get up at 6 a.m to go to school and you're You're tired. You had a bedtime? I didn't have bedtime at age 16, man. I don't know, but I'm saying imagine... It depends. This is the thing. It depends what the daughter's uh, default behavior is. And maybe
2: there is a better way to do it. It seems excessive. Okay, so... And this is a very personal thing. This isn't a right-wrong. If at 16 years old, my parents were enforcing bedtimes... I mean, at 16, you and I were, like, driving around in cars with our fake wannabe girlfriends and, like, chasing deer. You know, like, can you imagine having... There was like a be home by 1130 type thing. Yeah, but yeah it was, I don't remember. Well, that's a, I don't remember, but I'm. But that's not nine. <laughs> that's not like they weren't like, oh, don't you would be sleepy for school? It was like you were, that was your own problem. If you were sleepy for school at age 16. Yeah, but
3: I also got straight A's. Like what would, what about if your daughter's sure. getting C's and was getting A's before she met the boyfriend? Oh, that would be a completely different situation. That's what I'm saying. I don't yeah. know any details here. So mm-hmm. It's like, he seems controlling. I don't know. What are you guys doing? Like, has she started doing drugs since she met you? Is she still getting straight A's? No, but you get what I'm saying. Like the response, this response is totally different depending on what
2: the last three months have been like. I'm buying this person's frame, which is implicit and having not mentioned any sort of breakdown that this is, he's a controlling dad and he is more controlling than most. And where he, you know, he has not come in. it, It negatively impacted this, this girl's life, which could be wrong. You know, maybe he's yeah, not I don't telling know. us. He's like, ever since I got her addicted to Xanax.
3: <laughs> or he just, <laughs> or get, or he just and... <laughs> thinks high school is not important. He's like, who cares if she's getting C's? Yeah, I don't yeah. know any of the details here. But but personally, I'd say for me, definitely I would rather have this conversation with my daughter mm-hmm. than the boyfriend. And so I would think the boyfriend's best chance of being persuasive is to talk to his girlfriend, see if she agrees. And to the extent that she does agree help her come up with a persuasive way to talk to her own father mm-hmm. that's my sense i mean your sense can be that'd be cool to go
2: talk oh i don't to know them. that was a question here's the truth man i i don't 16 is so far away as is being a father so this is one of the harder questions you could have asked me because mm-hmm. i'm much better if you're like i'm 20 to 40 <laughs> those and yeah, uh, well yeah.
3: i can get this at the high level
2: at a high level like what does the
3: dad want mm-hmm. probably his daughter to be healthy happy functioning well in society and successful in his definition of successful. So to the extent that someone could ameliorate his stress around his daughter having a phone and staying up past 10 or whatever, and that the dad were convinced that removing those constraints would lead to a daughter who was doing well in school, being happy, not going down a bad path in life, whatever it is, he's going to be okay with it. So at a high level, persuasively, you just think about what does the dad want? Why does why is he making these rules? How can I help persuade him to have conviction in the fact these rules are unnecessary and maybe even getting in the
2: way of achieving that? Mm-hmm. That's how you would, or to get him more of what he wants, and and a happy condition being the, the laxing of the rules or something like that.
3: Right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Just think about from that. What does the dad want? And then be like, okay, how can I get him convinced that these rules aren't achieving that, they're actually in the way of it, or releasing them wouldn't get in the way of what he wants, and he, somehow he can actually get more of what he wants. Mm-hmm. Maybe he's scared he's losing his daughter, and so she can say there's some, you know, some activity or time they can spend together that would mm-hmm. continue to make their relationship strong, that would make him feel comfortable, that he could release the reins a little. I don't know. I don't know the dad, you, or the <laughs> girlfriend, but that's the best way to pers- be persuasive, is just think, why is he doing this? What does he actually want? He doesn't... The, his end goal in life isn't his daughter's screen time on the phone, you know? So... That's, that's your high-level best route. Cool. Go about that however you think is going to be effective.
1: Hey, everyone, this is Justin cutting in from the edit. Uh, Sorry about the mic quality. I don't have any of the fancy equipment at home, but I wanted to let you all know that this next question was taken from our Patreon Q&A, which we release once a week on our Patreon. Uh, If you're interested in hearing the full episode or more like it, then find the Patreon link in the description. So next one is, I don't have any motivation to pursue goals since every successful person, including you guys, tells (laughs) me it won't make me happy. Uh, Chasing money, girls, or a dream and achieving it will give you a dopamine spike for a second, but that's it. After that, you feel exactly the same way you felt before. That's what everyone says. Yep. Apparently, the way to true happiness is just being content in the present. I know that and can logically understand it, but as of right now, just being with myself with all that spiritual clarity and anti-materialism also doesn't make me happy. Mm -hmm. Is the the chasing dream stage just not something you can skip? It feels like a waste of time knowing what's ahead. I also Ah. don't have anything I genuinely enjoy or would like to pursue out of pure fun. And on a side note, I'm pretty sure I'm not clinically depressed or anything like that. I'm not, sla- uh, I'm not sad or lonely. I still experience every emotion a normal guy would have. Um, I'm just bored to death with life, and I don't want to fall into nihilism. Mm. Um, or maybe all that is just an excuse to be lazy and just watch Netflix all day. I really don't know anymore. I'm about to travel the world in two weeks as oh. a last resort, with the first stop being France. Hope you guys got some advice. Well, it's interesting
3: t- from my perspective, because I think
1: it's not a bad
3: takeaway, to say, well, you guys and every other rich person says, oh, money doesn't make you happy. Sleeping with a thousand women, that's not, you know, its it all, empty ultimately, it it's, uh, feels hollow or it's like eating candy or whatever. So because of you guys, I'm not gonna pursue it. But then the subsequent thought I would have thought is like, because all of you at the end of the day talk about how it's about this peace and contentment and such, so I've started a two-hour-a-day meditation practice or started doing psychedelics or, like, I don't think, I actually personally think you can pursue either mountain because it sounds like you haven't done either one yet. So I think there's, I genuinely think there's value in going out, trying to conquer the world and become charismatic and make a bunch of money and make your dating life incredible and build a bunch of great friends. And it's fun. And also I think it, it's, it's not all hollow. Like I I do think your relationships and a certain quality of life are additive, even in the face of hedonic adaptation. Or if you're saying, I'm going to skip the first mountain, to climb the second mountain. That's different than just clip skipping the first mountain. And so it's like, okay, if you are going to try to live a enlightened monk's life of austerity, but contentment, there is work that goes into that for most people, unless you have an Eckhart Tolle, a just random moment of enlightenment sitting on a bench. It's all the meditation and monk training that goes into that i think that's why people like jay shetty go to monasteries for three years so you pursue either mountain i think neither will lead you astray but
2: well they can but
3: <laughs> uh, based on this question for yeah. this person i think yeah I, both can lead you astray that's fair but yeah i think to do to pursue neither mountain and you're currently dissatisfied with that path i would say that's not the prescription like I'd only say, if you said I'm pursuing neither mountain, but I'm just extremely happy and content and I feel like I've already reached enlightenment. It's like, okay, maybe you got that Eckhart Tolle sitting on a bridge or a bench moment. But Yeah. If you don't like where you're currently at, pursue one of the mountains. Yeah. That's what I would say.
2: Well, uh, yeah. Tough, tough to give advice on this because my most recent experience was just very, it's all good. <laughs> like, well, you did psychedelics. That's pursuing yeah, yeah. the second mountain. You, uh, you sure. went and sat. <laughs> well, well, I guess, so it wasn't just that. It was, uh, <clears throat> I, I don't want to talk too much about that as regards this, but the one thing, it was just, it was also a recognition, like whatever you're doing is going to take you where you're going. So <laughs> your boredom is going to take you there just as fast as your activity is. Yes, yeah,
3: some people, which you could, in an enlightened state, you'd say that's okay too. Mm-hmm. Some people's path has been laden with boredom and unhappiness mm-hmm. and looks like it's going to continue to be a life of boredom and unhappiness yeah. and you can respond by saying well that's okay there's not there's nothing inherently spiritually superior between happiness and unhappiness but if someone's living it and going i'm not really enjoying yeah, this yeah. then i
2: would say yeah like mix it up pursue
3: the happiness mm-hmm. in that case um one of one of you've the... also done a lot of work in the first mountain you know this I did this person say their age um no they could be in the early 20s and having not yet tried to Self improvement, or do you know anything? Maybe they could have just graduate college recently, yeah. So I think it's a bit different than being 34 mm-hmm. and having done 100%. all the previous work, it's totally different,
2: totally different. Yeah, the one of the mistakes that I think I make, and a lot of people make, is there that they're like, Well, if it's not valuable in the final analysis, then it's not valuable today, and it's that's kind of like being like. You know, the things I learned in first grade aren't deeply true or the way that they taught me physics in 11th grade with no friction is not true. So it was useless. It's like, no, no, no. Like first grade is great. It's, it's foundational. Like 11th grade is great. It's all, it's all there. So if you're in, you know, wherever uh, you are and you're going, oh, all these rich people told me that these pursuits weren't going to make me happy. I'm not saying that you have to do it, but if there's part of you that's like curious, it's like, yeah. Go ahead and go ahead and try to get big and strong or make money or, or well, it sounds whatever. like this person has no curiosity
3: or drive to do anything. Am I reading this right? Like they don't want to get money. They don't want to sleep with women, but also don't, they aren't necessarily pursuing like increased meditative enlightenment. They're, well, they're just
2: kind of then, then I suppose killing find and they something fear that, that stands on its own. So like for you, uh, that's surfing, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like you don't need to get better at surfing for surfing to be valuable to you. Um, for some people, it's like it's playing music or listening to music. Um, th- maybe the travel will spark something inside of you. Um, you're saying you just feel kind of bored right now. Those no, no
1: just for life.
2: Yes. What I would advise you is to sign up, and you did with this travel thing. It doesn't need to be the last one, but it, it, you know, for a number of activities that you've heard people say are valuable in and of themselves. And so common ones are like surfing, music, dancing, art. Some people like business. Um, some people like relationships with other people. Uh, some people like trying to have sex. Some people, you know, uh, I don't think that, that one lasts for a very long time. But <laughs> I pursued it for its joy in the moment at the time. Yeah. But uh, and give them a try and uh, see if any of those shake the boredom and and you find valuable in and of themselves. And so I think it's really good that you have this, this trip coming up because it's going to give you an opportunity to. Try a bunch of different things, and you you'll probably find a bunch of things you hate, like maybe even French food, (laughs) all that bread. Um, Definitely English food. Yeah, but that would be my recommendation.
3: What do you do in general if you just have if you're like just apathies? You're you're just meh. Just apathies your go to, and it's not a pleasant
2: experience for you. It's tough, man, because I love apathy. That's what I'm saying. Imagine that it's not like imagine you. Tough. It's really tough for me to sink into because I've cared too much and so apathy is a relief oftentimes for me
3: i know that's why i'm saying i feel like sometimes that's the place that people come from that's foreign to yeah. you but that happens which is like i, I don't care about i, did. Anything. I yeah. wish i cared i wish yeah. i cared about something i wish i did more. well i'll tell you I what wish there was that's something-
2: often i think i don't not to sell it, i think emotional mastery i've seen has affected people in this particular one it didn't really do it for me but apathy is often a guard against um intense feeling you know, mm-hmm. like because the feelings or if you're are a failure because, or because not being good fe- enough. Exactly, because the fear is so overwhelming. I don't give a shit because um, it it makes me feel so good. I don't give a shit because it makes me feel so nervous or whatever. I don't I don't care. Um, so some of the meditations in week two of Emotional Mastery are very helpful. I think for there's particularly an apathy meditation, um, and in those cases, I do think some sort of inner exploration because I I no longer. Believe that there are untraumatized, negatively apathetic people. I think you might have like monks who appear apathetic, mm-hmm. but in like a pleasant way. But when there's that just dullness, I'm like, that's that's a lowering of the volume on no, life. Uh, no, no, I agree. That's what kind of what I wanted to bring it up is yeah. I think that um, for you or
3: I who were so achievement focused for so long, oh, to not give a shit is like it's such
2: a sigh of relief. Yeah,
3: yes, but then there's the person. I mean, there's there's just a lot of the flip side of where we've gotten to that I think like apathy in a way that is destructive Negative, yeah. or we're like, oh yeah, now we play video games because for a decade, I didn't read a book <laughs> unless it was self-improvement and I didn't do an activity unless it was going to make tomorrow's Ben better than yesterday's Ben. And so it's like the ability to play video games for three hours is such a stark difference from doing that for a decade. But then you do get, when I was doing a video on video game addiction, I didn't end up making it. You get guys who are, Yeah, I was addicted in high school. I broke the addiction. I managed to get into a community college, and then I got sucked back in. And I play sixteen hours a day. I literally would blow off family dinner to do it. I have no friends. Friends would come over, and they would try to talk to me, but I would not look away from the computer screen. And so I lost all my friends. And now I'm broke. My parents just kicked me out of the house because they got tired of playing for the internet. I'm homeless, and I'm a video game addict. It's like, oh yeah, there is this other end of the spectrum where it's not just, hey, if you like video games because they're fun. Fucking play him as much yeah, as you yeah. want. It's like that's well, good advice for you, Charlie Hooper, mm-hmm. but it's there is a, just a destructive.
2: I think explore the apathy then. And and so the kind of the exercise is, which you can do on your own or you can join the course, but um, it's just a guided meditation in this particular case is what does apathy feel like inside of you? And it takes time to actually notice it. And it might feel like an emptiness, it might feel like a pain in a particular area. Um, and you allow that by noticing the sensation or the thoughts that arise, you kind of allow them to continue to play. So what apathy can sometimes be is it's like it's a pause or a mute on a negative feeling. And that that, ne- that emptiness might be fucking horrible. And on the other side of that, if you were to go into it, you might just burst into tears at how many things you're upset about, you know. So this meditation in allowing you to sink into the feeling, allow it to evolve move inside of you you feel the emptiness shift you feel like now have thoughts in your head or something somebody say to you you'll never amount to anything and you hear echoes Um, the guided meditation takes you through that but you can start to do it yourself so you feel the apathy feel the sensations thoughts sounds images that arise be with them hang out with them see if they move Um, and then if you feel stuck you can say when have I felt this particular sensation before so it might be like a pain in your heart when have I felt this earlier in my life and you can continue to do that all the way back to you know when was the first time and see what comes up and oftentimes what apathy is is it's like a jam like all emotions can be like a jam in the flow and this can unlock it and then you're dealing with sadness which is an improvement (laughs) you know what i mean or longing or or frustration or anger but all of a sudden you've got that like vitality is coming back to you there's things that you hate there's things that you like and and you'll maybe even have more of a direction from it so that's uh i think an approach that can be helpful cool that was the last one. All right.
1: We got patrons. Yep. What do we got? So we're going to talk about setting boundaries with work tasks. We're going to talk about if your charisma is a little too high energy. And then we're going to talk about being authentic versus making an effort to fit in.
2: Okay. That's what we got on Patreon and many more. So if you guys want to check that out, every single dollar amount gets you access to basically an additional podcast that we do determined by you, the viewers and listeners. So if you want to do that, it helps us keep going. Go straight to Justin's pocket and we'll be over there in a moment. Peace out.